welcome to Voice Over Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? I'm Russell, founder of Newton Media Group. And today is August 3rd, 2022. Burnout is a life-changing experience in a good way, as absurd as that may sound to those in the depths of burnout. So says Charles Hughes Smith. Today we present the chapter-by-chapter preview of his newest audiobook, Burnout. Thanks for joining us today. Chapter 1. My Experience of Burnout Before we begin, please remember, I'm not an expert in burnout. I'm only an expert in my own burnout. This is not advice or guidance. I'm only sharing my experience, which might not be relevant to your experience or useful to anyone else. It's very important to me that you keep in mind that I'm only sharing my experience and views. I like working, and I like my work. That wasn't the problem. The problem was, I didn't think I had any limits. I thought that I could keep pushing myself even as I became increasingly exhausted. But all humans have limits. Mine were not visible to me. Even as I slipped closer and closer to my limits, I didn't see the cliff edge just ahead. When I exceeded my limits, I burned out. Burnout teaches us we all have limits. What is burnout? In my experience, when our capacity to keep working drops to zero, that's burnout. We want to continue working, but the capacity to do so is no longer in our control. We hit our limit and there's no fuel left in our tank. We want the validation, purpose, and livelihood we gain from work, but we can no longer do the work. This loss of power and control is distressing and puzzling. Why is this happening to me? Here's what I felt at the bottom of burnout. An exhaustion deeper than I'd ever felt before, a tiredness that never ended, a collapse of my willpower, and a depression that never lifted. I lost the self-discipline that I'd maintained without much difficulty for years. I also lost the joie de vivre, the joy of being alive, which had been replaced by exhaustion and a feeling of unending stress. I'll never get out from beneath terrible burdens and never catch up or be free from crushing responsibilities. Though I didn't want to admit it, I also felt self-pity. I'm trapped, hopeless, and misunderstood. Even my spouse who would burn out six months later, made light of my exhaustion, dismissing it as temporary and mere complaints. Only those who have fallen down the same well can understand, and I didn't have any other burnouts to consult. That's one of the things that makes burnout so painful. The burnout is often totally alone. Those of us who are accustomed to accomplishing a great deal and being in charge are most devastated by burnout because we pride ourselves on being productive and take charge. Our willpower and ability to work hard are lost in burnout. We can no longer force ourselves to take charge, and since burnout is outside of our control, we feel a devastating powerlessness. Burnout is the loss of self. Our trusted tools no longer work. Something in our life is broken, and it's broken us. Burnout isn't something you choose. It's something that happens to you against your will. Willing it to go away doesn't make it go away. 
Burnout is frustrating, not just because it's outside our control. It's also beyond our understanding of how the world works. We rely on our intellect, experience, and willpower to solve problems, and all three come up empty in burnout. We don't know how to make burnout go away. Our previous experience doesn't apply, and our will, our most trusted tool in managing the world, has collapsed. We're completely broken. There's nothing left in our tank. No reserves, no willpower, no control of what's happening to us. We haven't lost our energy. Chapter 2. Triage Nobody knows what will be most helpful to someone else in the depths of burnout. I certainly don't. I do know that if a weekend getaway and a shopping spree resolve your exhaustion, you aren't burned out. If you're burned out, planning a getaway is a joyless burden. Never mind getting to the hideaway. And shopping is just another ordeal. I titled this chapter Triage to introduce the idea that the goal is to stop the bleeding and start the healing. Burnouts aren't bleeding from open wounds, but we're wounded physically and psychologically nonetheless. Triage is the process of prioritizing care to those most in need. The burnout is the person most in need, so we must start caring for ourselves. The goal is to reduce whatever is causing burnout so it doesn't get worse and take the first steps towards healing ourselves. We can't help anyone else unless we first help ourselves. Get help. Let's start with the obvious. If you need help, get help. In my first burnout at age 33, I became very depressed and sought the help of a psychiatrist. I chose to see a medical doctor. Psychiatrists are MDs because I wanted someone who looked at the entirety of my health, not just my depression. In my second burnout at age 63, I consulted my doctor, primary care physician, and asked for a battery of tests to confirm the burnout hadn't damaged my health and to check if some unknown medical issue might have triggered my burnout. Fortunately, the test results were normal, but it was certainly prudent to check and prudent to seek help. Exhaustion has many possible sources, including myalgic encephalomyelitis, or chronic fatigue syndrome, MECFS. As the visibility of burnout increases, the number of professionals with experience helping burnouts has also increased. Not all physicians and mental health professionals have experienced treating burnout. The psychiatrist my spouse consulted after she burned out gave her a prescription for an antidepressant and sent her on her way without asking about the life circumstances causing her depression. It may require a search to find professionals with experience treating burnout. Researchers found, Scientific American, January 2022, The Long Shadow of Trauma, that having someone with whom we can share our experiences is the key difference between those who struggle with the aftermath of trauma and those who manage to have fulfilling lives despite traumatic experiences. As one researcher put it, Of course it's unpleasant. It's a disaster, but it's not so disastrous if you can share it. It's not helpful to suffer in silence, so finding someone with whom you can share your experience is an important step toward healing. How long will it take to get through this? It's natural to ask, when will it end? 
because we're suffering and so we hope burnout will end soon. In the depths of her burnout, my spouse sought answers to the question, how long will it last, in others' experiences. There is no one-size-fits-all answer. Some burnouts report being back to normal in a few months, while others report still being burned out a year later. No one can say how long it will take to emerge from burnout because it depends on the individual's circumstance and age and whether the sources of burnout are identified and reduced or eliminated. In my experience, it's not helpful to focus on speeding up the process. Chapter 3. Why We Burn Out University of California Berkeley professor Christina Malash pioneered research on work situations that accelerate burnout. Her six-point list explains how a normal 40-hour-a-week job can burn us out. 1. An overwhelming workload. 2. A loss of control. 3. Not being rewarded for efforts. 4. Not being part of a thriving community. 5. Not being treated fairly. 6. Having to adhere to the wrong values. I found it helpful to rephrase the list into these questions. 1. Is the workload sustainable? 2. Does the worker have choice and control over their work? 3. Does the worker receive recognition and rewards aligned with their output? 4. Is the workplace a supportive community? 5. Does the workplace foster fairness and respect for every worker? 6. Are there clear values guiding meaningful work? If all these factors are negative, then a normal 40-hour-a-week job is more than enough to burn us out. If our workload is unsustainable, our responsibility is open-ended, our control over work limited, we don't receive recognition and rewards commensurate with what we accomplish, our work environment is not supportive or fair, and our work is no longer meaningful, this generates chronic stress that tears down our body, mind, and spirit. These also define our life beyond work. If these factors are negative in our relationships and household, the result is chronic stress. While these factors are certainly consequential, I don't think they exhaust the causes of burnout. Although the conventional view is that burnout is the result of overwork, this overlooks the great complexity of life outside work. Work can be the least stressful part of one's life, a refuge from truly toxic sources of anxiety. Although it may be obvious, certain personality types are prone to burning out, while others are less likely to burn out. The ambitious, driven, goal-oriented perfectionist type A personality is prone to burning out, while the laid-back, less ambitious person with lower expectations is far less likely to burn out. In my view, a factor that few mention is the lower expectations person may be comfortable with themselves as they are, while the driven perfectionist may subconsciously feel their real self is unworthy, and so they strive for an ideal self who is worthy of recognition. Children who grow up in households where the adults are too distracted by their own problems to validate the child's feelings, needs, and interests and encourage the child's development are prone to feeling insecure. Since the parents are incapable of providing the love and nurturing every child wants, the child naturally feels they're unworthy of being cherished. This feels terrible, so the child naturally thinks that if they can somehow project a better version of themselves, they'll be worthy of the affection and validation they don't get at home. 
This drive to project an ideal self who is worthy of recognition becomes the template of their lives. Rather than accept the real self's insecure fears of being unworthy, the uncherished child devotes themselves to being recognized by making a splash in whatever way they can, acting out, becoming the class clown, developing an athletic, academic, or artistic skill, being especially helpful to others, etc. The mechanism for gaining self-worth may differ, but the goal is the same. Develop some way to gain the attention and praise of others. Chapter 4. Burnout's Hidden Complexities. It's not just work. To truly heal burnout, we need to identify the sources of burnout. If we only address the symptoms but not the sources, we'll continue to be burned out. These are sources I've identified as relevant to my burnout. They may not be relevant to your burnout. What Healthcare Misses In my experience, the chronic stress that leads to burnout has two sources, causes within the individual and causes within our socioeconomic system. What makes us a unique individual, our personality, values, and experience, is the conventional focus of healthcare. This therapeutic focus on illnesses to be cured and symptoms to be alleviated is a major industry. Healthcare is almost 20% of the America economy. Trillions of dollars support treating illnesses and symptoms. From this perspective, burnout is a condition that can be treated with conventional means. Medications to relieve insomnia, depression and anxiety, and therapies to aid recovery so burnouts can return to work. The possibility that it's not just the individual situation that is the source of burnout, but our socioeconomic system, does not compute within the healthcare system. The only response to a socioeconomic system that burns people out is to help individuals cope with burnout. If the source of burnout is the socioeconomic system, the healthcare system has no means to address this source. If the burnout says, my job is killing me, I can't do it anymore, the response is, here are some pills to alleviate your symptoms and here are self-help techniques to help you find another job and get back to work. The healthcare industry isn't going to say, the socioeconomic system burns us out. The only way to heal yourself is to leave the system. There is no industry that focuses on helping individuals deal with socioeconomic sources of burnout. These causes are poorly understood because they're outside conventional economics and healthcare. Economics focuses on measuring money, interest rates, etc. It has no interest in measuring burnout, which is far more difficult to measure than money. The healthcare industry recognizes chronic stress, but it doesn't recognize the socioeconomic system as the source of stress. It only recognizes, this job is stressful for this individual. The solution offered is to find a less stressful job or make time for a hobby. The healthcare system isn't designed to say, the source of your burnout is our socioeconomic system. There are no conventional measures of these sources of burnout. Just because we don't measure these sources of burnout doesn't mean they don't exist. They are very real and devastating for individuals. The economy's role in burnout. The nature of work has changed in ways that wear us down. Those who profit from our work aren't interested in reducing the workload because that would reduce profits. There are two reasons we don't recognize social economic sources of burnout. 
One is that burnout doesn't fit neatly into any existing category. Economics looks at individuals as rational beings who calculate what's in their best financial interests and responds to incentives such as higher pay. That our economic system burns out its workers doesn't compute. There's no space in economics for the idea that the economy diminishes and sickens us. Healthcare seeks causes of illness. Is burnout a conventional illness? Is it caused by genetic flaws? Virus. Chapter 5. How do we feel good about ourselves? In my experience, we shape our lives to increase whatever makes us feel good about ourselves. We're motivated to do more of whatever gets us noticed and praised. Our identity, how we think of ourselves, is tied to what makes us feel good about ourselves. For example, being hardworking makes us feel good about ourselves, and so it becomes part of our identity. Our self-respect is validated by the admiration we get by working hard. When burnout takes away our ability to work hard, we lose what made us feel good about ourselves. What makes us feel good about ourselves is not always visible. The process is on automatic pilot. If we found something about ourselves that attracted attention and praise, we felt better about ourselves. Every human wants to be valued, and so we latch onto whatever gets us favorably noticed. If we're attractive, then we use that to gain attention. If we're athletic, we pursue sports. If we're intellectually gifted, we pursue academics. If we're charming, we turn on the charm. If we get praised for helping others, we become helpers. If we have a comic talent, we become the class clown. If leadership comes easily to us, we become leaders. If our talent is artistic, we pursue music or the arts. If we have money, we buy things that garner attention. Lavish homes, luxury cars, art, boats, a particular breed of dog, etc. Whatever we have that attracts attention and praise empowers us. If we lose our looks, talent, house, etc., we feel powerless. Our positive attributes are our source of self-worth. With our positive attributes, we gain more control over our lives, what sociologists call agency. Not everyone is naturally gifted. Most of us are somewhere in the middle. We'll probably have to work very diligently to get good enough at something to raise our visibility. This is one reason why the ability to work hard is so prevalent. It's the most accessible pathway to visibility and praise many of us have. I was invisible in all my schools, of which there were many as my family moved often. A scrawny, average boy, I was in the basement of athletic talent, good looks, charm, and brilliance. As an undersized, shy, new kid with no friends, I was the ideal target for bullies. Undersized and untalented, I was always among the last boys picked for any squad in physical education, P.E. I was a liability, not an asset. As a new kid in town in the eighth grade, I seemed to be less mediocre in basketball than other sports. Since the school was small, just about anyone could play a sport, I joined the basketball team. No matter how hard I worked, I would never be as good as players with natural ability improved by experience, but over time, I did get better than average kids. I also joined the football team in 10th grade as a bench warmer and tried out for track. Eventually, I was among the first boys picked in PE sports, 
not because I was talented enough to be first string on any team, but because I'd raised myself from the basement to the first floor. My natural talent was still mediocre, but I'd raised it to the highest level of my ability. Being invisible with nothing to feel good about yourself is no fun. Humans are social animals, and our prospects in life depend on where we are in the pecking order of visibility and influence. No wonder we want to become rich and famous. It's how we're wired. We pursue what empowers us and advances us in the pecking order, which is... Chapter 6. How did work become the primary source of self-worth? Many of us rely on our work to feel good about ourselves. Work provides much of our identity and self-worth. When we can no longer work due to burnout, we lose our source of self-respect. No wonder burnout so often leads to depression. There's very little to feel good about if we relied on work to make us feel good about ourselves. How did work become the central source of our self-worth? The easy answer is that work is how we earn money and status, and these define our place in the world. But this answer is incomplete, for there are many non-work-related sources of identity and self-worth. For example, we can get self-respect from being devoted parents, volunteering in community groups, participating in sports leagues, completing creative projects, and sharing the bounty of a productive garden. We can draw our self-worth from facing our problems directly and from being a good friend to ourselves and others. Our personal integrity can be a primary source of our identity. None of these require a job. So, why is work the primary source of self-worth for so many of us? One is the complex transition of our economy from stability and security to instability and insecurity. This has many sources. I'll cover two below, hyper-globalization and hyper-financialization. The net result is that we're all on our own, and so we have to devote ourselves to work to achieve some security. Korean-German philosopher Byung-Chul Han calls this the Achievement Society. Nobody needs to command us to achieve more. We are our own slave-driving boss. In his 2010 book, The Burnout Society, Han says overachievement and overcommunication lead to exhaustion, fatigue, and suffocation. He writes, The Achievement Society is the society of self-exploitation. In other words, we willingly exploit ourselves, constantly seeking to produce more as the price of getting ahead. In Han's view, we think we're free because we're not beholden to an outside authority. Nobody is telling us we have to pursue this career. But this freedom of choice is illusory, as we're imprisoned by our need to achieve, whatever the cost. We end up working harder than if work were compulsory. Han writes, This is what makes self-exploitation so efficient. The achiever is both perpetrator and victim. In other words, this isn't just healthy ambition to achieve, it's hyper-achievement. When hyper-achievement becomes our principal goal, we fall into hyper-self-exploitation, which becomes destructive. We sacrifice everything to achievement. Burnout is our involuntary withdrawal from self-exploitation. No wonder we've come to depend on our work to make us feel good about ourselves. Work is now so all-consuming 
there isn't much time or energy left for anything else. Why does this all-consuming work life leave us so prone to burnout? In Hahn's analysis, our economic system is not concerned about a good life. Its focus is more capital, income, wealth, produces more life. The more money you make and own, the more expansive your life. But is this life of ever-expanding money and achievement a good life? It's certainly profitable for those reaping the gains of the self-exploiting workers. But is it a good life for the self Chapter 7. Running on Empty The title of Jackson Brown's song, Running on Empty, is an apt description of burnout. We're running flat out to keep everything glued together, but our fuel tank is on empty. We're making greater sacrifices while everything we once felt was rewarding rings hollow. We're too tired to care. We're not doing all this work because we want to, because the rewards of pay and positive feelings about ourselves are so great. We're doing it because we have to. If we slow down or cut back, the whole thing falls apart. Before burnout, the rewards were our focus. As our tanks run dry, we start focusing on the sacrifices, which have increased incrementally, even as the rewards have eroded. As we keep running on empty, our ability to feel anything other than exhaustion declines. We're zombies going through the motions, not because the rewards empower us, but because we have to make money and keep everything together, regardless of the cost to ourselves. But once our tank is dry, we can only keep running on empty for so long before the automatic self-preservation of burnout shuts us down. The sacrifices required of us have ratcheted higher so incrementally that we haven't noticed that the ratchet only clicks higher. It never drops back to lower levels. We tell ourselves it'll get better, but it doesn't. The workload and stress only increase. The rewards appear to be unchanged. We're still getting paid, but the rewards no longer matter. We feel like we're on a treadmill rather than getting ahead. We tell ourselves we're doing what we want, but that rings false. The truth is we're too tired to care. Our ability to feel anything other than exhaustion and stress has cliff-dived. Sacrifice and rewards are a trade-off that change over time. When we were vibrant and enthused, the sacrifices didn't feel like sacrifices. They were just the normal grind. The rewards made us feel like we were on the right path. Once we're running on empty, we no longer think about the future. We only focus on getting through today. Any thoughts of the future tend to be fantasies of running away from our burdens. Chronic stress undermines our ability to work and diminishes the rewards. As the burdens get heavier, we realize the rewards are not worth the tremendous effort we're making. As we start burning out, we realize our work is suffering, we're becoming forgetful, every day is a slog through a swamp of stress, we no longer enjoy the things we once enjoyed, everything takes extraordinary effort, and, as a result, our sense that we're going in the right direction has crumbled. The conventional view on burnout is that all this is the result of overwork, and once the burnout dials back their workload and devotes a few precious hours to their own interests— the sacrifices and rewards will be restored to a positive balance. While this may be true for some burnouts, this superficial, it's just overwork, ignores the sources of chronic stress that are not directly related to being overworked. 
The superficial explanation ignores how the nature of work has changed. Work is increasingly open-ended. The employee is expected to respond to work demands regardless of other commitments. The self-exploitation of the achievement society is also open-ended. There's always another credential to get or another market to tap. The expectations are also open-ended. Others are holding up despite the superhuman stress, so you should too. The extreme disparities of wealth and power leave many people as second-class citizens, a situation that greatly increased. Chapter 8. What Changed? Those who have known us for a long time may be mystified by our burnout because they don't see any changes that seem big enough to trigger such a life-changing collapse. They may not have seen the stress ratcheting higher or the increasing constraints and powerlessness. They can't see what's changed inside us, and we may not be able to tell them because we're only dimly aware of these changes ourselves. The general expectation is for everyone to be cheerful and positive, because we always have choices. If life gives you lemons, make lemonade. If you don't like your job, get another one. If you don't like your house, move. Yes, everyone has choices. But these choices are constrained by our agency, i.e., control of our lives, wealth, character, locale, education, etc., and whose permission we need to make major changes. Once we burn out, we no longer have the energy to make big changes like moving to a new locale or changing careers. We can't face these tasks until we've recovered. The previous chapters covered the incremental increases in stress that, over time, can add up to crushing burdens. This chapter looks at the changes within us that transform our perception of the sacrifices we're making and the rewards we're getting. When what we rely on to feel good about ourselves is no longer working, we question what's meaningful. Maybe our circumstances haven't changed. Maybe we've changed. These changes don't announce themselves. We don't wake up one morning and say, I've changed. These changes occur beneath the surface of our busy lives. It's like the season changed, but we didn't notice it as we were occupied by our daily lives. Another reason we aren't aware of how much our feelings have changed is we are deeply committed to whatever we've invested so much of ourselves to build, a career, home, family, and financial stake. Our first impulse is to protect this investment from anything that threatens to upset it, including our own feelings. We tell ourselves we like our job, home, and prospects as a way of talking ourselves out of any doubts we might have. But telling ourselves what we should feel doesn't change what we really feel. We can suppress the feeling that something is broken, but we can't reverse it. We fear changes in ourselves because the consequences are unpredictable. If we admit our feelings have changed, won't this upend our life? Rather than face these uncertainties, we try to persuade ourselves into agreeing that these feelings are just a temporary slump, but whatever isn't working keeps gnawing away at us until we finally break. Since these changes occur beneath the surface of our conscious awareness, they may manifest as changes in behavior rather than as flashes of insight. Since we repress our feelings, they may come to the surface as actions. Rather than admit to ourselves that our marriage is no longer working, 
we have an affair. Rather than admit to ourselves we hate our job, we get fired. If we're self-employed, we torpedo an expansion that would have required more work or cling to a business our burnt-out partner desperately wants to sell. Our conscious minds are adept at inventing cover stories for our sabotage. My boss was a jerk, etc. Though we do our best to hide our feelings, we can't hide them all the time, not even from ourselves. We become frustrated with ordinary problems and find ourselves fantasizing about running away to a new life. Chapter 9. Acquiring Yourself The purpose of the previous two chapters was to explore this simple statement, Burnout has changed me. As I said at the end of chapter 3, burnout is an involuntary intolerance for what no longer works in our lives. What no longer works generates chronic stress, and so we burn out. I also said that burnout is a reckoning and an opportunity for renewal, a gift that can be rejected or accepted. If we insist that burnout hasn't changed us and we can strap ourselves right back into whatever burned us out, in my view, that is rejecting an opportunity for renewal. In my experience, burnout raises this question, who am I really? If we refuse to ask this question or insist that we haven't changed at all, we've decided to cling to whatever burned us out. Cause and effect, same circumstance, same effect, burnout. If we accept that if we want to emerge from burnout, our circumstances have to change, that raises this question, what changes do we need to make to eliminate the sources of burnout? The simple answer is, eliminate sources of chronic stress. This is a practical approach, but in my view, burnout is the result of our circumstances not serving who we really are. We put our energy into achieving success, and the net result was we burned out. We told ourselves we were serving our own interests and that we were happy, but burnout shredded those rationalizations. Going back to what caused burnout is not a solution to burnout. To figure out how best to change our circumstances, we first have to first figure out who we really are and then make a realistic assessment of our circumstances. What are our options and what constrains them? Without this self-awareness, we are unlikely to gain a recovery from burnout and a renewal of our enthusiasm for life. The next two chapters present pathways to self-awareness that I found useful. They may strike some readers as too philosophic to be practical. In my experience, self-knowledge is inherently elusive, and shortcuts touted as practical tend to be dead ends. In other words, I present these two chapters as more practical than shortcuts based on personality tests and checklists, the usual shortcuts in our achievement society. But as I said at the start, I'm only sharing what helped me. These pathways may not be helpful to you. With this in mind, let's give it a try anyway, shall we? You've heard the expression, finding yourself. This presumes some part of ourselves has been abandoned along the way and is out there somewhere awaiting our rediscovery. To find it, we must search for our lost self. There is some intuitive truth in this, as the trade-offs we've made may have required abandoning some aspects of ourselves. Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard used a different phrase, which translates as acquire yourself. As my wife and I each struggled to make sense of our burnout, we found ourselves drawn to the works of Thomas Merton and Kierkegaard, 
More on Merton in a moment. Kierkegaard was a Christian who wrote extensively on faith, but he also addressed the human condition and the choices presented to each of us. He wrote dense, difficult books, which I do not claim to understand. As a burnout, I was interested in what he meant by acquiring oneself, because this struck me as an essential step in the process of understanding my own burnout and clearing a path to renewal. For Kierkegaard, the process of acquiring oneself is not just rediscovering ourselves, but creating ourselves. This is the goal and purpose of life. Chapter 10. Silence and Listening When we're burned out, we have solitude, because we're no longer able to handle an endless flood of social interactions. Kierkegaard believed that solitude was essential to acquiring oneself. If we're on the phone all day, there's no space for the silence needed to gain self-knowledge. Only if we're silent can we listen and contemplate. What are we listening to and contemplating? We're listening to our own thoughts and feelings. The art of contemplation is to develop a detachment which allows us to listen to our thoughts and feelings as an observer. If we can't observe how our thoughts trigger emotions, we can't gain insight into where our emotions come from. Once we learn to observe how our thoughts fall into ruts, we can practice new ways of thinking that don't fall into unhelpful ruts. What happens if we listen to ourselves as observers? What happens if we set aside all the shoulds that dominated our pre-burnout lives? What happens if we set aside the guilt that we feel for not being able to fulfill all those shoulds? What happens if we set aside everything we feel we're supposed to be doing for others? What happens if we set aside the negative thoughts that trigger the emotions of depression? What happens is we become more objective about our thoughts and we see how our thoughts create emotions. We come to understand that we can consciously substitute different habits of thought so our thoughts no longer automatically fall into unhelpful ruts. Like Thoreau, Kierkegaard was a great walker. As noted in the triage chapter, walking is therapeutic for me and many other burnouts. Walks give us time to reflect while helping to heal our minds and bodies. We might ponder our path to burnout and ask if we were in devil's packs we didn't even see. We might contemplate how we weren't fully aware of what we relied on to feel good about ourselves. We might explore our past for memories of what enthused us as young adults. We might imagine being happy with ourselves and our life, rather than returning to the struggle of keeping it all glued together. There are variations of listening to our thoughts and feelings about ourselves, our lives, and our burnout. We can also ponder the larger contexts of our lives. Later in life, Merton was interested in Eastern philosophic traditions and published an interpretive translation of the writings of the 3rd century B.C. Chinese Taoist sage Chuangzu, now written as Zhuangzi, The Way of Chuangzu. I was first introduced to Taoism in the early 1970s in a university philosophy class taught by the eminent scholar Chuangyang Chang, translator of the Tao Te Ching and author of Creativity and Taoism. I mentioned my decades-long interest in Taoism as context for my interpretation of Merton's writings on Chuangzu. 
In Merton's reading, the Taoist surrenders attainment, not just in the material world of wealth and status, but in the spiritual realm. The Taoist isn't trying to become rich and famous, or a saint. The goal is to accept one's flaws with humility and forget the self, rather than become hyper-self-conscious by constantly comparing oneself to a fixed standard, which is the focus of attainment. The Taoist is neither seeking attainment, moral purity, wealth, power, or inactive contemplation. The Taoist term non-action doesn't mean doing. Chapter 11, Life Beyond Burnout. Let's recap. This is my experience. Yours may be very different. We cling to what we feel we must have, even though it no longer works for us, so we burn out. Burnout is an involuntary intolerance for what no longer works in our lives. Burnout is the governor which shuts us down before we self-destruct. It is an involuntary safety mechanism that protects us from damaging ourselves further. We didn't choose to burn out. We want to heal in advance. To heal in advance, we must identify the sources of our burnout and eliminate or reduce them. We can't go on, but we must go on. We will go on. Burnout is a gift, an opportunity to reassess and renew our lives. The poet Rumi's line summarizes the burnout's opportunity. Where there is ruin, there is hope for a treasure. Looking beyond burnout, we need a livelihood and a way of life that reflects our enthusiasms and limits the sources of burnout. If we try to return to the situation that burned us out, we will burn out again. If we pursue options that aren't realistic, we'll remain stuck on square one or return to it. Everyone's circumstances are unique, and these goals may have no value to anyone else. These are my life beyond burnout goals. Four goals. Goal number one, avoid the burnout recovery, go back to work burnout cycle. We're not recovering just to go back to what burned us out. We have to make changes in our life. Goal number two, eliminate or reduce the sources of burnout. What causes chronic stress? Open-ended commitments and complexity. I've already discussed the difference between open-ended and limited commitments. Open-ended commitments lead to open-ended workloads and sacrifices because there's no limit on what's demanded of us. Our control and rewards are limited. Unpredictability goes hand-in-hand with open-ended commitments. Unpredictability generates stress. If we're on call for work, every ring of the phone creates anxiety. Is my day or evening about to be upended? If we control our commitments, we can set limits. If others have the power to demand open-ended commitments from us, then we're stuck in the burnout, go-back-to-work, burnout cycle. Work that is within our control allows us to do good work while we're at work without burning out. Modern life is complex. It's difficult to reduce complexity. Once again, the keys to managing complexity are control, and predictability. It's less stressful to manage complex things if they're predictable and we control the process. For example, if we're self-employed, we have to pay estimated taxes, excise taxes, etc. These are predictable kinds of complexity. 
Other kinds of complexity are open-ended and outside our control. And these complexities don't just add stress, they multiply stress. Complexity that serves our enthusiasms and that we control is not draining like complexity we don't control. Many projects we do for pleasure are complex. Gardening, crafts, music, home improvement, etc. But the rewards are well worth the effort. There's only so much we can do to reduce burdensome complexity. Managing people, enterprises... Thanks for listening to Voice Over Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, newtonmg.com, to your friends and colleagues. And be sure to visit Charles Hughes Smith's website, of twominds.com, for more information. And that's this week's episode of Voice Over Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? Don't forget to join us on Tuesday for the chapter-by-chapter preview of this same book, Charles Hughes Smith's Burnout. Thanks for listening.